Welcome to Between the Stacks, a podcast presented by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. Each episode brings you into the library to meet our collection of people making an impact on the community of Athens and Limestone County, Alabama. My name is Jennifer Baxter. I'm the Athens-Limestone County Public Library Director, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Robert Burkhart. And he is going to tell us his story, tell us a bit about himself and his history. And actually, that's my first question for you. So tell me a little bit about who you are. Well, uh, I guess some of your listeners may know me as the former library director at Athens State University. Uh, I worked there from 1977 to 2015. Uh, when I retired from there, and I was director there for about half those years, from I think it was 1994 up till up till the end to 2015. Um, and I'm not from Athens. Um, originally, I was born in Huntsville, and I spent my early years uh, and my school age years uh, there. Uh, I was an only child, and so I must have gravitated toward books <laughs> as a search for companionship as much as knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was a really early reader and a frequent user of the public library back then, uh, even though I couldn't really get there. It was, you know, about a mile or two away from the house. But, uh, you know, whenever a book would be reviewed by Captain Kangaroo on his television show. I think which I was, might have heard of that. No, before. you wouldn't know about this. <laughs> but anyway, that was my source for book reviews, okay, at the time, at a very early age. I feel like you were a very fancy young child to look forward to book reviews. I was just a curious young child. I think, I don't know how fancy I was. We certainly (laughs) didn't have a fancy living environment. But anyway, I'd hear these reviews, and he would make a certain book sound very, very appealing. And so the search was on, you know, at that point. My mother soon learned she could pacify me by, uh, before she went shopping, she would take me by the public library, and I would go there and pick up a book or two, and I would have the books read, you know, by the time she was through shopping, and, mm-hmm. and I was appeased, you know, and she was happy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyway, uh, in those days, Huntsville Public Library, they had a Carnegie Library. Are you familiar with the, with the mm-hmm. Carnegie yep. Libraries? Uh, Andrew Carnegie was a steel magnate, uh, made his money through steel. Uh, he was a huge philanthropist. Apparently, don't know the whole story, but apparently libraries had really influenced him in some way. My sense was he was like many people of the time. He was relatively uneducated in a, in a traditional sense, mm-hmm. but he learned through his exposure to reading and to others. Mm-hmm. So he valued libraries. Yeah. Okay. And so I guess it was about the last part of the 1800s, maybe the very beginnings of the 1900s, he started sending money to communities so they would construct libraries in their community because he felt as though that would really elevate hmm. you know, the citizens of that yeah. community uh, through literacy. And Huntsville had one of those. Um, a lovely building. Um, it was like all the Carnegie libraries. It had the, the steps going up, and the steps apparently were symbolic of his belief that libraries put you on an ascendant path. That is so cool. You know? I didn't uh, even know that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, the children's section, which is where I was going, was in the basement oh, of that library. Creepy. And it, it had its own separate <laughs> entrance. You know, I didn't think of it as creepy. I thought of it as a little cozy, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a nook, you mm-hmm. know, away from things. Yeah. 
So, and, and the lady that was there, bless her heart, she was very welcoming. You know, older lady probably, I'm sure, wouldn't have had a master's in library science degree, but that doesn't matter. People right. can have an impact on you. It doesn't yeah. matter what degrees they have or what education they have, but, but she was welcoming, and that was a big thing for yeah. me, you know, at yeah. the time. And upstairs, they had the, the just book stacks and some seats, but they also had um, fish tanks, okay? I don't know why. <laughs> uh, and so to this day, I still associate public libraries with aquariums. How funny. My yeah. last library where I worked had a big aquarium. It was huh. nice. Yeah. There was something soothing about mm-hmm. it. I don't know what. And, you know, fish don't make a lot of racket. <laughs> <laughs> the so, good fish. The good fish. That's right. No. <laughs> so nice. did you, you said you were born in Huntsville, but did you grow up there? Or did you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I grew up in Huntsville, okay. and uh, Huntsville was a was a growing community, mm-hmm. you know, at the it time. It still is. Yeah, this was when it was really, pardon the pun, it was really taking off. Yeah. In fact, I went to church with uh, many of the the team, the von Braun uh, oh, rocket wow, team. So we even had a German language service at some point. Okay. Our next door neighbors were part of the the rocket team, and my father was from German extraction, so he had an appreciation for for the food and the culture and all that. So. They got on famously, and mm-hmm. so I was invited over there and, and got to eat their food. And they had a really pretty daughter, too, that was <laughs> <laughs> quite a bit older than I was. And, you know, and the rocket tests were going on also back mm-hmm. then. And so the ground would shake in the afternoons. And, you know, you think this stuff's going to go on forever. Yeah, um, and it doesn't. No. Things change. Yeah. So, yeah, I grew up in Huntsville, graduated from high school there. I uh, didn't know what I was going to do about a profession. Didn't know what I was going to major in, for sure. Mm. I took these aptitude tests, and one of them said I should be a, an Army officer. Hmm. Okay, don't know why. I don't think of myself as being officious in any way, but another one said I should be a mortician. Oh, that's drab. Now, there's a Miller analogy question. What does a mortician and an Army officer have in common? Death. Okay, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, my first declared degree was mortuary science. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. It lasted about two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't go into mortuary science or anything like that, but I did just go, you know, take took the general liberal arts courses at the beginning. This was at Auburn. That's safe. It was, and I got exposed to lots of different subject areas mm-hmm. and ended up kind of falling into an English major simply because I got reinforcement from the professor. He says, oh, you know, I like the way you think. I like the way you write. And I thought, okay, well, I'm getting reinforcement here. Now, this did not please my dad. No. No, he, he thought this this was a pretty sorry return on his investment. Oh, no. Being in English. He says, what are you going to do with an English degree? He said, how's Romeo and Juliet going to help your income? You know, this kind of thing. And I, I didn't have an answer for that. Yeah. I didn't know. So one day, um, this was on a Saturday, I was in the library, which shows how pitiable my social life was. You know, at I'm the time. sorry. I think all of the cool people hang out in the library, but that's okay. just me. Well, there weren't many of us back then. <laughs> and it so happened there was a girl that was um, working the reference desk who was in an English class with me. And uh, she said, hey, I need to go to the restroom. Can you uh, staff the desk? And I said, okay, what, what did I do? What am I supposed to do? She says, well, um, if anybody asks a question, just direct them the best you can to try to answer their question. And she says, I'll be right back. I said, okay. So uh, as luck would have it, uh, someone did have a question. It was something about literature, and I happened to know where the, where the books were for that. And so I felt this warm feeling of, fulfillment mm-hmm. sort of surged through me. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, maybe this is something, you know, I could do. So I tell people if that girl had stronger kidneys, I don't know where I'd be right now. 
you know? Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. That's yeah. funny. I love what you said about the fulfillment because it feels good to help. To help people. Yeah. And I consciously wanted to be in a profession where I could help people and not risk hurting them. Yeah. My dad wanted to push me toward a medical career. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I thought, you know, I don't want to be responsible for doing something that would harm someone. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was my feeling then. Gosh, I love how thoughtful you were at that age. Yeah. I, well, you know, as I said, I kind of had a boring social life, so I guess I had plenty of time to think, <laughs> you know, I suppose. Anyway, so I started looking around for, for library programs and asking questions, asking people, you know, maybe where are the places I should think about. And so then I just ended up with this degree. And, Where'd you uh, go to school? Oh, I went to University of Tennessee. And um, when I graduated, it was a recession and uh, there weren't many jobs. Mm-hmm. So my next door neighbor from Huntsville, New of a job. Person? No, he wasn't. This is a different okay. neighbor. I had, this was an engineer at the Arsenal, at oh. Redstone Arsenal. And he, he heard through the Arsenal of a job at Athens College. And I, I don't give this guy enough credit for changing my life. I really mm. don't. But now that I think about it, he was very instrumental in this way. Mm. Anyway, the director of the Athens State Library worked weekends and nights at the Redstone Library to pick up some extra cash. Oh, wow. So he'd met this neighbor of mine there and says, hey, I just can't find anybody to work in the library. I just don't know. And so uh, he told me about it. So I went over and interviewed, and that's how I got this job here. And I never left, and I never <laughs> expected that. But I did fall in love with Athens State and the town of Athens also. Yeah. It reminded me so much of Huntsville, the Huntsville I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Because Huntsville back then, before it really took off, was a small community. People knew each other. People wanted to help each other. And it was a welcoming place. And Athens was like that for me back then. Mm -hmm. I just really fell in love with everything here. You Um, were telling me, actually, before we started the podcast, I guess I didn't realize that you got your first job at Athens State and you stayed there and never left. But you were telling me you started out at $6,000 a year. Oh, yeah. It was miserable money. Even (laughs) then, I had a master's degree. No experience now. But, yeah, I mean, $6,000. My dad, he showed me with pen and paper how I was actually losing money taking this job because of the (laughs) the expense of running the car from Huntsville to Athens and back. And he says, you know, this isn't good. But he said, uh, you are getting state benefits, and that is good. Mm -hmm. And he said, why don't you hang with it six months and see what happens? Well, what happened is there was a lady who I worked with, and uh, she quit the job to go to work for Browns Ferry. And then I got her money plus mine and, and her responsibilities also, I yeah. should say, <laughs> that came along with it. And so through the years, my job kept getting enlarged, I guess. But I liked, I don't like routine. Yeah, me neither. When I started working there, I was pretty much cataloging all day. <laughs> See, I know, I know, but somebody has to do it. That it's and very that, important. And that's the reason I had my job, yeah. remember, was to catalog. Yeah. So I had to appreciate it for that. Wait, I guess I didn't know that your first job was as a cataloger. Oh, yeah. I don't yeah. think I heard that part. You didn't, because I just now said it. <laughs> now, you can't believe it, can It you? is very crucial, but, I mean, my goodness, it's very tedious. And I'm a people person, mm-hmm. and so it seems a little alien to my nature. However, I can be meticulous when I want to be, <laughs> and so I liked it. In small doses, mm-hmm. okay? And it turns out the job that I had evolved into one where I could be a cataloger for in the morning, perhaps, in the afternoon, I could work reference oh, cool. or do some other things, acquisitions. Yeah. And with the, the lady leaving, I did acquisitions too. So the, the nice thing about the way that I came up in the library profession, I guess yeah. you might say, is I was able to do a lot of just about every facet of library work you can think of. Yeah. And, and one of the real advantages of being a cataloger is 
you get to see the books when they come in. And so in cataloging them, you get exposed to what the books are about. That's right. Yeah. And so it sort of helps you do reference service later oh, yeah. because you know what books are out there. That's right. I say books because this was an age before we had computers and yeah. databases and that kind of thing. It was a different world back then. You were limited as a researcher to what was in-house. Yeah, I've thought about that many times because I love being able to find something out instantly. And this kind of leads, it's an ongoing conversation. People constantly ask me, and I would love to ask you, you know, what I hear, oh, you're a librarian, aren't libraries irrelevant? Well, they've changed. Now, they're not irrelevant, but they're certainly not, they're not as the Ford expression used to be, your grandfather's Ford or whatever. They're not your grandfather's library at all anymore. Uh, Back then, the real stature in being a librarian was being able to find information for people in ways that they didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Information was harder to come by. And if you were a really good reference librarian, you knew your collection very well. You knew what all the books in the reference collection were and what they could provide for people. And you could amaze and astound your friends by finding information they didn't even know existed. <laughs> okay, And that gave you a sense of what power, I guess, yeah. information power, as they used yeah. to say. Mm-hmm. But that all changed, you know, with the Internet. And and now access to information is not the problem. It's access to quality information. Mm -hmm. It's access to good information. So by the time, I guess it was probably starting about 1995, 96, something like that, I could see that the emphasis in libraries should shift to information literacy. Yeah. Trying to find what's good information. And that's a challenge for us today, as we know. It is. And you're extremely right. Okay, maybe it's not just a printed book anymore, but the World Wide Web, www, it Mm -hmm. it is the Wild West. My generation has really watched it completely change and develop over the last, what, 30 years. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen it. So Yeah, me too. A lot of what I see is... In public libraries, it's, it's weird, it's different, but mm-hmm. what I, I'll see people who come in and they are on the computer and they don't understand that they're, they're about to give all of their personal information to a phishing email. Right. You right, know, and I'm right. like, whoa, 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 no, right. don't do that. Yeah, I'm a real advocate. Um, an advocate may be an understatement. I'm almost an evangelist for information literacy. <laughs> I agree with I you. really am. And uh, and we had gotten to that point in my last years at Athens State where everybody was required to take a class in, in that before they graduated. It's an essential skill, yeah. especially now. So tell me a little bit about what you define as information literacy. Um, the ability to find, not, not just find information, but finding as part of it, the ability to find and evaluate information for quality, for authority, for uh, reliability, uh, currency is a part of it, of course. Just because something's on the Internet, you can't even guarantee currency, Mm -hmm. by the way. People think that. Specifically, not reliability as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we would talk about how to look at um, URLs, Mm -hmm. for example, and to try to, even from that, estimate how authoritative a source could possibly be. Mm -hmm. Look at the origin of it. Who was it created by? You can Google people who are responsible for the creation of the site and see what their biases might be. But I would show them different ways at at getting to that information. I feel like, um, really with the whole fake news and I have a journalism degree, too, which I've said a few times. You know, I was trained in the art of news and information. When they started throwing around the words and the terms fake news, it really hit me how incredibly 
important it is becoming for people to understand what's real and what's not and how do you find that there are rumor mill websites now have you seen those where they literally it's a website that generates absolutely inaccurate information on purpose purposefully yes and i think things are shifting and changing at such a rapid rate it's almost impossible to be able to articulate it the value and the importance of information and maybe information literacy like you said yeah yeah and you know uh it doesn't help that much of news and much of politics has now become perhaps more theater than anything else Mm -hmm. it doesn't help people really understand and assess what the truth is i agree and you know we're in a real challenging Mm -hmm. environment and libraries, to me, have a, have a crucial role in that way. Now, I have to say this. We haven't talked about this yet, but I guess we will. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a book for Athens State. I'm working on updating the history of Athens State for the Bicentennial. It's coming up on its 200th anniversary next year, 2022. Gotcha. Yeah, very, very old. One of the oldest institutions. Uh, it was originally for women. So it's one of the oldest for women that was created in this country. And it was in the rural south. Well, Think about that. Yeah. Think about how innovative that was. Huh. Why? Why did they do that in the rural South? What did... Well, uh, you know, here's the challenge is there aren't a lot of primary sources mm-hmm. from back then, but we can guess based on where women's colleges were being created in other parts of the country. And they wanted to elevate women uh, in that they did not have the education that men did. They, they regarded them not so much as a source of labor, but as some people that might could help around at the home if they had more education, like bookkeeping, you know, that kind of thing. Plus, it was nice to think about a young lady of some refinement having uh, been educated in the classics. Back then, there was an emphasis on, um, you know, Latin, Greek, of all mm-hmm. things. You know, it was a fairly rigorous curriculum compared to some others. It was the one in Athens actually uh, became to emulate the curriculum offered by male colleges, Hmm. more so than others. And it became a school that women in the area could aspire to attending. Was it very Um, limited in who they accepted? um, I don't know. You know, that's that's a good question. I think the money would be the main impediment to most people attending. At the time, it it took money to go to school, and, uh, well, it still does, uh, of course. Now it's borrowed money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, back then, no. It wouldn't have been that. Uh, Athens was an agrarian community for the most part. Cotton was a staple. And so many of the women who, young women who attended college would have been daughters of landowners. And that kind of bleeds into the idea of having them help with the business. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And that's what was going on in other parts of the country. Um, the real challenge for me, I guess the reason I brought this up about this book as it relates to libraries, yeah. that is, the real challenge for me has been not so much uh, trying to evaluate the information because I think I know how to do some of that. But for me, it's been actually going back to the old days trying to find information hmm. because most of this stuff is in scarce information sources like old newspapers, some of which can be found. And if you find them, maybe they're in bad shape. You can't yeah. read them. Yeah. Or there may be some primary sources out there written. And we're still discovering. I'm about halfway through the book and I wish I could almost go back again because we are still finding source material, you know, written by like mm-hmm. early presidents mm-hmm. that will, is still surfacing. The people in the Athens State Archives have been invaluable to me in helping. That's I amazing. need to give them a shout out. Yeah. 
they, yeah. they're wonderful folks. That's so cool. I mean, the idea of it being lost, if not saved, by mm-hmm. the archivists, you know, and yeah. never knowing, just losing that information. Dr. Elva McClinn wrote the first history of Athens State. It was written in the 90s, 1990s. It was written pre-internet. And, and actually, the first hundred years that she prepared was actually quite well done. The most recent hundred years, um, I was trying to give it a little bit more flavor, perhaps, and not just the typical documented history. Yeah. So I interviewed about 60, over 60 people, I think, to get their, I guess, their oral history yeah. about their connection with the school. We've interviewed former presidents, former students, faculty members. And uh, basically what I'm looking for is what's the nature of their attachment to Athens State. Have you learned interesting to, things? Yeah, yes, very interesting. <laughs> and, you know, not only that, I've met some marvelous people. Yeah. Uh, I have to talk about one of them. Is that okay? Yeah. To mention yeah. one? Absolutely. Um, there, there's a lady who's 100 years old now in Georgia, and uh, she's a wonder. She was the student body president in 1942. Well, in 42, uh, a female student body president. Yeah. Was well, it still a women's college? No, actually, it, it wasn't. It had gone co-ed by 1930. Okay. It had to, to survive. Uh, that, this is another thing I should talk about, is Athens State College has reinvented itself so many times. It had to, mm-hmm. because there were, there were numerous times of serious financial calamity, mm-hmm. numerous times mm-hmm. of that, numerous epidemics and disease situations mm-hmm. through the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the community was occupied by Union troops during the Civil War, but yet the mm-hmm. college was spared. So there were several challenges, and that's probably an understatement, through the years. And the Athens College story is one of perseverance as much as anything else. But anyway, getting back, can I go back to Lillian real quick? Her name's Lillian. Lillian what? Well, okay, yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think it's Wilson. Okay. Miss Lillian, student body president, 1942. My memory's not perfect. But I just know Lillian. I mean, with... Somebody like that, you just feel like you want to know her by her first name. Yeah. Um, she lives by herself okay. still. Um, she has probably more energy than either you or I. <laughs> uh, seriously, I mean, I said, okay, let's sit over here because the light's better for the video. And yeah. she said, well, this ottoman's in the way. And before I could do anything about it, she had the ottoman picked up and was taking oh. it to the next room. You know? And she's four foot ten, maybe, yeah. on a good day. But she can remember everything. And uh, she could even recall... Uh, the words of a poem that one of her professors had written about the town of Athens. What? Yeah, yeah. She started reciting that to me. Wow. And, of course, I'd never heard the poem. Yeah. Yeah. To have a prodigious memory like that? Yeah. What a gift. I don't have that at 36. No, no. And I neither, obviously neither do I. I can't remember her last name, but she does. She, she's got to get, and I interviewed several people that did have these facilities, this ability mm-hmm. to recall uh, things like that, which was a great help to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had wonderful stories to tell, too. Because as I said, the college had reinvented itself so many times through the years. Um, so what did you learn particularly from Lillian? Oh, well, remember. yeah, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, you know, it was interesting because at that time, the male students who had come in great numbers when they first became co-ed in the 1930s, but you know what was going on in 1942 was the war. Yeah. So they were, they'd all left. And so the female students basically talked about how boring it was. They said the only men that were left were four Fs or religion majors. The what women, is four F? Four F is a person who couldn't even get in the military service because oh. they failed either an eye exam or oh. failed some other part. They had some kind of disability or limitation. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
So well, what does 4F loser. mean? Do I we... don't know. Okay. I don't know. No, well, I'm I don't just going to Google it really quick. Okay, Google it really quick. Uh, and at one time, there was a deferment for being in college anyway, and that's how Athens College grew and prospered so much in the 1960s, was people were dodging the draft. All these students from the north and other parts of the country came here to school. It doesn't tell me what the number four and the F stand for that I can see. Mm-hmm. It just says not fit for military duty due to mm-hmm. medical or dental issues. Oh, I didn't know about dental, but that makes sense, I guess. I don't know enough about it. I know, you know, in, in the library field, we don't have to know everything. We just need to know how we can find it, <laughs> right. you know. Here's your source. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so you said that the women said the only men that were left were either 4F or... Religion majors. Uh, <laughs> and, and they said, and what fun are they, you know? <laughs> That's yeah. that's an interesting time. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. an interesting time. Uh, some of the women looked forward to, there was a military um, camp down at Calhoun, near where Calhoun Community yeah. College is now, mm-hmm. and they were training people for, I think, the Air Force. Then. Okay. And so they would get to know some of those guys. Yeah. And that sort of saved the day for them, I think. <laughs> and there's a story about, at one time, there was a, I think it was a French pilot, maybe, that came down and kind of buzzed the top of the dorm building, and they would all wave to oh, him and, and, and blow kisses and things. And <laughs> so, you know. It's a different era. Everything's a different era. So what we're living now is going to be a different era for somebody. I know. It's going to be an interesting one to look back upon, I believe. Yeah, I guess. All right. You talked about how you're filling your time, which is... Yeah, well, it's not just writing the book. I mean, I'm also doing some volunteer things because these opportunities kept presenting themselves. You know, I'm serving on the foundation board here for the library. I'm on the church council at the church and... In a way, I'm almost as busy or maybe more so than when I was working. I hear that a lot from retirees. So what made you decide to actually retire, though? Well, you know, this is the rule of thumb, is that managers should probably not stay in an office more than, say, seven years at the same place. I never okay. heard that. Yeah, and see, I had been director for, you know, two to three times that. You know, things weren't getting stale, I don't think, but I didn't want them to get that way. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was time. And, you know, we'd done a lot. We'd built a new building. We actually moved the library ourselves, the oh, library wow. staff. I guess that makes sense because you want to make sure who better to who better to know how to move them. Well, of course they were going to be in proper Dewey Decimal order. You know <laughs> yeah. that was that was one of the and that's uh, important. Well, it was. It yeah. would have created a lot of unnecessary work. I was very fortunate. I need to say that I was very fortunate to work with the people that that I did. They yeah. were some not only talented people. There were some interesting people that made the day go by. Uh, stimulating. You know, they mm-hmm. kept up with things and mm-hmm. had. Good saucy wit, you know. Many of them did, yeah. and, and good we, saucy wit. I think I'm gonna put that on a T-shirt. Well, you know, you need that, yeah. uh, especially during stressful times, mm-hmm. like when you're doing a move, you know, yeah. or, or something like that. Yeah, um, or during COVID. You've got to have a release. You've got to be able to laugh. So it's, it's essential, really. Yeah. I was thinking when you were talking about your oral histories, I just kind of had this thought about how really we're all living histories. Yes. And if we don't connect and communicate, absolutely, and we don't extract that value. We all have a story. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a story. And I think it's important. <laughs> Actually, important is an understatement. I think it's essential that everybody somehow write their story down or get it captured somewhere or another, not only for their children, but you never know what kind of story it might tell for people you don't even know, yeah. you know, down the road. Yeah. Like I'm finding now with Athens State history, we're seeing examples of people who put their story down from like years ago, mm-hmm. and now it's helping me so much understand the times yeah. in ways that just a simple recitation of dates and facts cannot. Yeah. 
We've, we've talked about diversity a lot in my generation and because we're still trying to diversify. And I realize that every single person and their individual perspective helps create the totality of the narrative of existence. It doesn't matter who they are. Mm. If you don't add their piece to the whole, then you're missing a piece. Right. And you know history, for the most part, has been told through just a select group of people. It's very true. And, it, you know, the, the profession of history has changed in the last, mm-hmm. say, 30 or 40 years. And it's trying to become more inclusive of different narratives now. That's hard to do because, yeah. you know, many people, the common people's narrative hasn't been preserved. Mm-hmm. So how do you find that? Yeah. I was thinking about that too. And, I, you know, I just went to Puerto Rico for a few days. So I was watching some YouTube videos about um, Puerto Ricans and their personal histories. And really, you know, they kind of colonized Puerto Rico. And a lot of that yeah. history kind of has gone by the wayside or they've lost some of their culture. And, and I was watching these videos about these two women. The point was that Puerto Rico used to be self-sustaining. So these women moved back. And they started doing this farming, and they're replicating this mm. long-ago practice of yeah. all of these different types of native plants and fruits and vegetables that they used to have there to be able to feed the people. Mm. You know, that's, I don't that's know where hard. I'm going with it, but basically... I don't know, but what occurs to me is it's got to be very, very hard to try to recreate culture. Yeah. Because culture is very complex. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a lot easier to find a dinosaur bone. Although I know that's not not easy, but what I'm saying is you can find a bone and say, here's, okay, here's a dinosaur. Okay. But culture though, oh my gosh, there's so many facets to culture. And a part of culture, a big part of it is the time you're living in. Yeah. You can't recreate that time. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, it was about how you're saying if if people aren't capturing their stories and their histories and their culture, then we lose it. We do. We lose the reasons why... Things were happening, really, because, you know, there are so many influences on people and on events that are sometimes lost, or we misattribute things. You know, it's easy to have what you call revisionist history and apply what our current thinking is to some time in the past without really fully knowing why things were. Hmm. Isn't this getting deep? Yeah, maybe so. Is this not the way you want this podcast to go? No, yeah, definitely. Well, we can talk library if we want to. We We can can talk talk about anything. Yeah, we can try. We're librarians. Yeah. It's nice to talk to someone who has a value for the library and understands. Because I think a lot of people look at library in a very shallow way. You know, it's here, Mm -hmm. it's a building, we have to pay for it, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, and I I try to say this often, what if you didn't have one? Well, there are different things to different people. They have different meanings in different ways. Like, for example, I've heard you talk about how the library transformed your life. Mm -hmm. Okay. I know it transformed my life, too. Mm -hmm. And there are many others out there, I'm sure, that have had their lives changed. Yeah. And I, I think so, about that when I see people in the library because we don't know who they are, what they're going through. We don't know why they're here, what right, they need. Right, um, It is a community resource. It is. And, you know, for many people, it's simply a quiet oasis from the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a way to get away. It's a respite. Yeah. Have you ever seen literature where they compared the library to a church? Mm-mm. In terms of they're both being a sanctuary mm-hmm. from all the craziness that's going on outside mm-hmm. its doors. But I think it's a really important thing to note that people say often that the library is one of the last community buildings you can go into without having to pay to be there. So there's that too. There's so many different roles for mm-hmm. a library that perhaps we don't always explore. Yeah. And uh, 
Like what's one thing we found when we would do surveys mm-hmm. is how many people relied on it for study space. Mm-hmm. We see that a lot here. I'm always surprised at how many people utilize these study carols. Oh, yeah. Many people can't stay at home. Many people don't have, you know, robust internet access Mm -hmm. at home, you know, Mm -hmm. for example, too. Mm -hmm. There's lots of needs out there. The great thing about a library is if you're there for one reason, you might, through serendipity, you know, start exploring and you might find some literature that really intrigues you and it might transform your life much the way that yours and mine have been. Mm -hmm. It's it's a cool cool thing. I agree. You know. I guess that's the value of... Everyone, they all have something to bring to the table, right? Yeah, but sometimes we don't value the gifts that some people have. You know, That's there's true. that too. If people are so different from us, we think, well, you know, mm-hmm. they're they're nuts. But no, they may not be nuts. They may have these attributes that you just don't recognize. Yeah. That's what gets me a, a lot. Um, you know, in the public library, we do see homeless people often. Yeah. And, but I think what always really hurts my heart is that there is value hidden in these people. Oh, yeah. Maybe they don't know it. Maybe they do know it. Maybe we don't know it. But there is something that they have to give. Yeah. If there's one single human that finds that value because of the library, just one person in all of my entire career. Right. Let's say I do this for 30 years. Right. One human finds a value point within themselves because of what we're doing, then it was so worth it. And you and I have had this conversation before when you prepare these reports, and I believe in the value of the reports you're providing. I'm I'm not saying that. But you do provide these reports that are quantitative based. Mm -hmm. You know, how many people came to this or how many people did that. And, you know, somebody told me once, and this opened my eyes up, Mm -hmm. says, why are you focusing so much on circulation numbers? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe a 100 people picked up a book, Mm -hmm. okay, put it back down, and maybe one person picked up another book. But it resulted in a publication that changed people's lives. Right. Now, which one was more valuable? Right. It's not always about the numbers. It's about the value add. Yeah, yeah. And that's hard to measure. Mm-hmm. Probably impossible to measure, it really. Is. I was thinking, actually yesterday, I was thinking about how institutions and organizations and groups, they do absolutely have to change to survive. And at this point in our in our societies, we're really looking and we need to diversify, right? Yes, yes. Inclusivity for survival. And, right. Um, in fact, even better, if you can anticipate the change before it happens. Yeah. And some of our greatest people through history have been able to successfully do that. You know, when I did my presentation to the county, I, I really focused a lot on the numbers because I get asked about the numbers a lot. I know. And, and there is, we could we could do the heartstrings, and I like that, and it's important. But also, I think libraries are questioned so much about their existence. I'm like, boom, here's a data drop because we do calculate these numbers. We do have this impact to show you the numbers, the percentages, all that, because I think a lot of times maybe libraries don't focus on that enough, at least in my experience. Yeah, and then listen, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I'm, yeah. and I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm a nerd because I like numbers. You yeah. know, I'm a wonk like that. I like to do what you're doing, preparing reports and thinking of ways to demonstrate yeah. the value of the library to the organization. It goes but back to the idea of us not capturing... We don't know. Yeah. We don't know. All right, so we talked about who you are, where you're from, what mm-hmm. you've done, what you're mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, have you exhausted yourself? Is there anything else you want to add? I don't know what else I want to do. I've got a full plate now, more than a full plate. I know this is going to surprise you, but I don't read nearly enough books right now because I'm, I'm writing one. Yeah. But I'm not an elegant writer. My skills are more in the area of research, yeah. but I do have a passion for it. Yeah, well, and, that's uh, what matters. And I think the research part is 
really in, in your case and in this book, probably extremely the most important part of it, I would imagine. We'll see. And also the, the benefit to me, of course, is, as I've said, is getting to know these remarkable people. Yeah. You know, somehow I want to go back. When I, when I interview these people, I almost want to like go back in that era and like be there and mm-hmm. say, oh, what happened? Mm-hmm. How did this happen? Mm-hmm. Who were these people? I want to get to know these people. Yeah. And in fact, I've had dreams like that. You know, my mm-hmm. dreams are I'm, I'm going back in time and I'm visiting with people who I never met, people I never met. People, I mean, they're, they're people that are long deceased. And yet they're here with me, along with some people who are alive now, and we're all sitting around and we're talking and we're having a stimulating conversation. I have dreams that's like that. So Isn't that strange? And that's a result of this work I'm doing. I'm sure it has yeah. to be. So it's helped me uh, in many ways. The job has. It's probably been the most pleasurable job I've ever had, and that probably includes library work. And I shouldn't say that, <laughs> but it, it has been yeah. very nice. A lot of work, though. Lots yeah. of work. I don't want to underestimate. Yeah, I'm uh, sure. Well, I appreciate you coming and talking, and we did some deep dives and some jumping around, but I think it was an incredibly interesting conversation. (laughs) Well, I look forward to seeing and reading your book. Thank you. I'm excited about it, and we will definitely have it here in this library for people to check out. You're very kind. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, and enjoy, listeners, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Burkhart. Yeah, thanks so much. Enjoy doing it. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Between the Stacks a podcast from the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. To hear other recordings from our Library Voices podcast series, check out our website at alcpl.org. Library Voices is also now available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.